You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Our text is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 12, at verse 1, and then one other verse in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's a question for you as we go through the series, this Lenten series of messages on the cross, a question to ponder, what's at the center of my life? What's the thing that I am most passionate about? What do I love to think about or what do I love to talk about? What do I love to do? What defines me? What energizes me? What's at the center of my life, what what would your answer to that question be? Another person, a cause that is important to you, a hobby, maybe a sport or a sports team, an athletic team, maybe your appearance or your clothes or your friends or your Facebook contacts or your career, your house or your car, your family. Well, it probably won't surprise you what I'm going to say next. For the Christian, the defining passion of his or her life is Jesus Christ and His cross. That is true for each and every girl or boy or woman or man who has come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But it is also something that we are all growing in, growing in our experience of living with Jesus Christ and His cross at the very center of our being. I hope that you will be praying during these six weeks as you come to hear these messages, Lord, I hope that you'll be praying, Lord, help me more and more to place you at the center. Help me to more and more turn away from the idols of my life, the idols that would displace Jesus Christ and His cross. Help me to see these things and repent by your power to more and more have a heart that is absorbed with Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus Christ and loving Jesus and treasuring Jesus Christ and submitting to Jesus and obeying His Word. That's what it means to be praying, Jesus, keep me near the cross, that hymn that we just sang. That's what it means to be absorbed with Jesus Christ. And tonight we are looking at the offense of the cross. We're looking at different aspects of the cross of Christ tonight. 
the offense of the cross. And let me define the offense of the cross for us briefly here, and then there will be three brief points about it. What is the offense of the cross? There are different ways you could look at that, but here's how I would define it in my words. The the offense of the cross is this. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his salvation that he provided through the death on the cross, those things are completely foreign to the normal way we would naturally think about God and ourselves. Jesus and his cross are offensive in the sense that they are totally opposite the natural way we think about God and how we relate to God. In other words, the offense of the cross is that the cross goes counter to the normal way the natural person in this world thinks about life and God and ourselves. Let's see how this works out scripturally with our three points. The first point is this. The offense of the cross stands at the entrance to the Christian life. The offense of the cross stands at the very entrance to the Christian life. I read from 1 Corinthians 1.18, and this is the heart of that point. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is this verse saying? What does Scripture tell us when it speaks about the offense of the cross in this sense? It's, it is not just saying that death by execution by a cross is terrible and ugly and offensive in that sense. Yes, we know that's true. We heard from the sermon last week that the Romans were, were deeply offended by the whole idea of execution by a cross so that a Roman citizen was not allowed legally by law to be crucified. It was offensive to the Romans, and certainly it was offensive to everyone else as well. It was a terrible way to die. It was ugly. It was offensive. It was awful. But that's not really the point of this text about the foolishness of the cross. This is saying that the Christian message about Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, that's offensive. See, it goes beyond that it's something ugly and terrible, a terrible way to die. It's saying the message of the cross, what the Bible says about what Jesus did on the cross, that is offensive. Why is that? You know, when you think about the symbol of the cross in our world and our society, across the world pretty much, the cross is now a religious symbol. You don't think of it as a vehicle so much of execution. We don't have the same kind of sensibilities about it as someone in in Christ's day would have had if they would have been walking along the road and, and saw somebody executed by a cross. We, you know, someone has said, in a sense, the cross has been tamed in that sense. Its ugliness has gone. We think of it in nice ways as a Christian symbol. And yet, even given that about the symbol of the cross, still the message of the cross is very, very offensive. It's offensive to the natural person. The message of the cross is that every person on this earth is a sinner, and every person is helpless to save himself or herself by being good enough to please God. In fact, we are hopeless apart from Jesus Christ and the fact that He died on the cross and rose again. And we are under God's judgment and His holy wrath against all sin apart from Jesus and His cross. 
Is that the way the normal person thinks about his life or her life? Absolutely not. How does a normal person think about his life and about God and how he's doing? Well, the normal person thinks, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And yes, I fail at times. I get angry sometimes. And I know that sometimes I say things I shouldn't say. And I cut corners morally here and there. And, you know, there are ways that I know I could improve. But I'm sure God understands In fact, every other religion of the world except Christianity has this view of God or getting into heaven in these terms. Hopefully, I'll be able to perform well enough and what I'm doing is acceptable. And if there is a heaven, I would think most people get in except the people who are really, really, really bad like Hitler and Stalin and mass murderers and people like that. They won't get in. But, of course, there are many postmodern thinkers in our day who don't even know if there is a God or heaven or things like that. So the whole message of the cross is an offense to that way of thinking about your life. Because that way of thinking, to some degree, lifts up human pride and says, well, I can make it on my own. And the message of the cross says, absolutely not. You need Jesus dying on that ugly cross for your sin. So at the very entrance to the Christian life, there stands this offense of the cross. To become a Christian means that you embrace the offense of the cross. It means agreeing with all the Bible says about our sinfulness and God's holiness and what Jesus Christ had to come and do on the cross. And it means saying yes to Jesus Christ and his cross. And saying, yes, God, I believe that's true for me. I embrace it. I rejoice in it. I am so thankful for what you did. I believe in Jesus and his cross. You see, the offense of the cross lies at the very beginning of the Christian life. I think back to my life, and I became a Christian at my sophomore year at Dickinson. And I started growing in my faith, and I started to be with the Christian group there, the small struggle struggling Christian fellowship on campus, and I had joined the soccer fraternity my sophomore year, and I was living in there. I was actually, I lived in town, so my freshman year I lived at home and and com- commuted, but my sophomore year I moved in and joined the soccer fraternity and started to get involved there, and I came to Christ during that time. Then my junior year, I began to really think about the application of God's Word to my life, and our fraternity dues at that time were going to buy alcohol and drugs. And I just couldn't, at that point, I began to say, I can't countenance that. And so I decided that I would quit the fraternity and move back home. So in my very young Christian kind of way, I told whoever was in charge of our Monday night brotherhood meeting, you know, we had a little brotherhood meeting that you do the business of the fraternity, and I I said I wanted to say a few words at that point, didn't tell anyone what I was going to do, and I stood up and said that I was quitting the fraternity, I was going to move home, and I tried to tell them why. And, of course, at that point, I stuttered so badly in my life that I could barely string two words together that wasn't severe stuttering, and I managed to fumble through a few sentences about it was because Jesus Christ was my Lord I had to leave 
and I couldn't put up with having my money go to these things, and that, you know, I'm sure I said something about I hope that they would, you know, think about what Jesus Christ did. It was very stumbling, very fumbling. But even if I wouldn't have stuttered a whole lot like I did, I'm sure afterwards some of them came up to me and just kind of shaking their head. You know, I knew a lot of them from soccer, and we had played together on the soccer team, which I stayed on all four years, but they just kind of were shaking their heads and saying, we don't understand. What is this? Are you a religious fanatic now? It's actually a Jewish friend who seemed to understand the most. He seemed to, you know, kind of put his arm around me and said, you have to do what you have to do, you know. Uh, But it wasn't that I stuttered so much. It wasn't even that I didn't explain myself very well. It was just that to those brothers who didn't know Christ, and there were one or two who did know Christ, and who decided to stay and had an influence there. But it was offensive. The little that they understood about what I said, it offended them because it was narrow. It said, the way to God is through Jesus Christ and his cross. And I've entered into that, and I I really want that for you, and you need that. That was offensive. The offense of the cross lies at the very beginning of the Christian life. And if you have come to trust in Jesus Christ, then you have already identified with the, the offense of the cross. And now that cross is something that makes perfect sense to you, doesn't it? It's your joy. It's your delight. You know it's true that you are a sinner. You know that you can't save yourself, but it's beautiful and precious to you because Jesus bore the penalty of your sins to bring you to God. This is something wonderful. Jesus endured the cross for me. And so Hebrews 12, verse 2, makes sense. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. And you read that and you think, that was for me. We heard that beautiful song Hannah sung about the power of the cross and the beauty of Jesus Christ dying. And you want to thank God every day. We'll see in a few weeks. You glory, you boast in the cross. So the offense of the cross stands at the entrance of the Christian life. And if you haven't come to Christ, you need to start praying, Lord, please open my eyes to understand what this cross of Jesus Christ is all about. But secondly, the offense of the cross stands as the pathway of following Christ for every Christian. And this is really at the heart of our text in Hebrews 12, verse 2. The the offense of the cross stands as the pathway for every Christian. Hebrews 12 follows on Hebrews chapter 11, when we see in all these Old Testament examples of people of faith who by faith did valiant things, and some of them were put to death because of their faith. There's this big list. And then chapter 12 says, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all these, it's like a big stadium, a big crowd of witnesses, not Not so much the text doesn't mean that they're watching us. It means they're bearing witness. They're testifying to us by their example. They've gone before us, and now they bear witness to us. There's a whole cloud of them. And and because of that, we're to throw off everything that hinders us from walking with Christ. But then in verse 2, it's setting before us the preeminent witness or example Jesus, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him 
when you're growing weary, it says. So Jesus is now set before us as the preeminent example. Yes, Jesus is not just our example. He's our Savior. We trust him. Don't ever just make Jesus your example. You end up with an empty, moralistic religion. He's our Savior. He's the power of our lives. But he is our example as well. Jesus went the way of the cross from Bethlehem to Calvary. Every day of his life, every year of his life, Jesus went the way of the cross. And now he's set before us here as the example to fix our eyes on him. When we're tempted to grow weary and weak and give up and throw in the towel, fix your eyes on Jesus. Be encouraged by him and trust in him and look to him for strength and power, but also be motivated by his example. Christians are called to, per- to persevere in trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. And it's not an easy road. It's a, a long and winding road. And may- maybe you're here tonight thinking, I know that's hard. Maybe some of you young folks who are here thinking, you know, being in the world today and living for Jesus Christ is hard. It is. Some of you older folks are thinking the same thing. Well, in terms of my job and my marriage and the struggles I have, It's hard living for Jesus Christ. It is. Some of you, even older folks, are thinking it's hard to face old age and the prospect of death and your body wearing out and these kind of things. It's hard to face those in trust in Jesus Christ. Every day of the Christian's life, the cross is before us. Not one person in this room will live this week without the cross of Jesus Christ and the way of the cross before you this week. And Jesus calls his people to follow him in the way of the cross and to take on and to experience the offense of the cross. He says in the Gospels, it's recorded six times. You know, when the Bible repeats something, it means it it emphasizes it. And if it repeats it six times in the Gospel, you know, this must be important. Six times it's repeated in the Gospel, the saying about Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, let him lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's what the Bible commands. Everyone who knows Christ. And so the way of the cross is hard. It's offensive. It's opposite to the natural way of the world. And it's hard and it's offensive in that it's opposite to the natural sinful mindset we all still have clinging to us, our natural sinful inclinations that are still there in part. That way of the cross is hard, and so it's offensive. Christians are misunderstood. If you're a young person trying to walk with Christ in the midst of today's society and you interact with a lot of folks who are in the world, young folks like you, you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be, people are going to kind of snicker at you and kind of think, oh, you know, they're going to mock you. They're going to misunderstand you. Maybe none of us in this room are going to experience persecution really badly, but some people are around the world. There's severe persecution, even to death for the sake of Christ. But there's another aspect to the way of the cross that involves this, turning away from daily temptations to sin out of trust in Christ and love for him. That is the way of the cross. It's before each one of us this week. Or you could look at it this way. Every choice we face this week 
to be obedient to God. That's the way of the cross. And it's offensive to the natural self. You could even say it this way, enduring hardship unto God with regard to the Lord as unto him. That's the way of the cross. So if there's some suffering in your life right now, that's the way of the cross because you endure it unto Jesus Christ. Here's an example from this. I just heard this weekend. I was having, I was at the men's missionary breakfast and I was sitting next to J.G. Zollner, who's a missionary to Montreal. And he was telling to me about life up there and uh, we've talked about this over the years and he was telling me about the natural way of young people in Montreal, the way they go about their lives in terms of marriage that is at least. Here's the normal, the normal way. You start a relationship with someone, then you start living together with him or her, then you buy a condo together, each of you spending your own money and separate legally, so if you want to break up, you get what you have into it. Then, if still things are going well, you have a child or two together, and after you do that, if things are still going pretty well, you get married. That's normal. That's the normal way. Okay, now, what if you're a Christian living in Montreal and you don't do things the normal way? What if your friends and people around you find out that you believe it's right to wait to live together till you get married? Or even more strange and weird is wait to have sex till you get married. Okay? That's the way of the cross. And people are kind of, you know, laughing at you behind your back and thinking you're weird and strange because because of Jesus Christ, you are walking the way of the cross and there's a cost involved. See how that's offensive to the natural mind? It's laughable. It's weird. It's strange. That's the offense of the cross. A Christian following Jesus Christ would at best be a mystery and at worst ridiculous, a religious fanatic to normal people. You see what I mean? Well, here's another example of this. In my church at New Jersey, there was a young professor, Rutgers, who taught in the classics department there. He's probably 29 or 30 years old. And one day with a classics department colleague, somehow this colleague found out that Alden and his wife tithed. And he just thought that was ridiculous. And he told some other colleagues there in the classics department, and they just all thought this was weird, strange, religious fanaticism, that you'd give a tenth of your money to the work of the Lord or the church. It was like Alden had suddenly put on this blue tuxedos with purple feathers sticking out, and he was squawking like a bird. You know, that's the kind of weirdness that these fellow professors looked at him as. That's the offense of the cross. If you're going to be obedient to Jesus Christ, that's sometimes how the world's going to look at you. Sometimes the world will admire you, but not most of the time. Sometimes, yes. It's offensive. And so the offense of the cross stands at every step of trust in Jesus Christ and every step of obedience to Jesus Christ throughout your life. And it's even hard to our old sinful inclinations which still weigh us down, which we read about in verse 1, everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. That's still there. 
And that's the cross is offensive to that normal, natural, sinful way that we would tend to think about things and look at our lives. It's so easy to avoid the way of the cross. But that's what Jesus calls us to, the pathway that he followed. And we're to keep our eyes on him. That helps us. And this brings me to my last point. The offense of the cross stands at the pa- as the pathway of highest joy. This is really the best point of all. The offense of the cross is like a doorway that leads to joy for the Christian in our experience. Look at this in verse 2 with the example of Christ, and it's true for us too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Notice that little phrase, who for the joy set before him. Jesus was looking beyond the cross at the joy that the Father had set before him. What was that joy? That was joy in being reunited with the Father after the Father had poured out his wrath upon him, after he had been separated from him in the cross. It was the joy at Jesus Christ now having all things put under his feet, being exalted to the Father's right hand. It was the joy, we read it in Isaiah, of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. The joy he saw in bringing you and me, his whole church of all time, to glory. That, th- those were the elements of his joy. And note here that it was actually by keeping that joy before him that Jesus endured the cross and scorned the shame. He despised the offense of the cross by holding the joy before him. And that's very, very important in light of what we're called to in verse 3. Consider him who endured such oppositions from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, there are many temptations in the Christian life to grow weary in the way of the cross. Whether it's temptation to sin or whether it's hardship endured unto the Lord, it's wearisome. It's like a long-distance marathon. It's not like a 100-yard dash. So consider him. Consider the joy. We saw it in chapter 11, Moses, Abraham. You can go back and read about them. It says about them that they had that joy before them as well. And so I ask you, are you living in the power of this joy, the joy that is beyond the offense of the cross? We experience that in part now and fully in glory. But in part now, in fellowship with Jesus. We are identified with Him. We have fellowship with Him. We have the rejoicing of knowing Him, even if the world is mocking, even if the world is offended and doesn't understand what's going on in our lives. We are united to Jesus. And so we have joy. And we look forward to that fuller joy that is to come. And so endurance and perseverance are God's normal path for His children. Children, I hope you hear that. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, that's normal Christian experience. God's normal path is the way of the cross, and it's always there for each one of us. So don't be surprised that your life involves the offense of the cross. If you are united to Christ, if you belong to Him, the cross is right there with you every day. Don't become weary. How? By looking to Jesus at His power, at His strengthening, And at his example, 
and the example of his joy that we enter into as well. I'm a big Lewis and Clark fan, and there's a, you know, there's a great book, Undaunted Courage, about Lewis and Clark and their trip out west to discover the West Coast. And, uh, but there's a public television series that was done a number of years ago, and I taped it when it was on, and I watch it every once in a while. I just love this series. Even better than the book in some ways because there's music and there's vistas, there's pic- pictures of it. But I just think when I read Hebrews 12 about the joy often comes to my mind is a chapter segment title of the Lewis and Clark segment called, Oh, the Joy. And that's a little quote from Clark's journal when they finally get to the Pacific, and he writes in his journal when he sees it, Oh, the Joy. They've gone through 2,000 miles. They've gone through the Midwest with these insects and mosquitoes so badly that they have to put bear grease all over their face, and their dog gets so sore because the mosquitoes bite his nose so many times. And, and they go through uh, a winter in North Dakota when the temperatures get so low that every day and every night they hear trees exploding because it's so cold and the sap just explodes. And they go over the Bitterroots Mountain, and they go over it, and there's no food, there's no game, and they go over it for days, and they're just about starving to death when they finally get out the other side, and they just stumble almost dead, and they manage to recover from that. And they finally get to the far west coast after all this labor and effort, and you think, and Clark says, oh, the joy. That was the goal. They got to the Pacific. Yes, they have to get the whole way back now, and they do. They finally get back, but oh, the joy. There is a Pacific Ocean of joy for every Christian in Jesus Christ. And it stands beyond the offense of the cross. I hope that you will enter more deeply into that joy this week. Let us pray. Father, thank you that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for us. We can't thank you enough. We are just humbled before you. We love you. We praise you. We pray that you would give us your grace to follow in his footsteps, trusting in him, loving him, treasuring him, keeping the cross before us. This man of sorrows who was also a man of of the highest joy, the God-man, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.